Hey everyone, welcome back to Cedar and Cypress. We're so excited to have you here and we want to wish you a happy Easter Sunday. Uh, We're so excited for this holiday. We just hope you guys are having an awesome time with your loved ones today and that you take some time to just remember what this holiday is all about and really the reason that we uh, have this weekend for Good Friday and for Easter Sunday, just to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Uh, We're just so grateful for that. And uh, before we get started on this episode, we wanted to shake things up a little bit uh, and we're going to ask each other our favorite Easter traditions to kick this episode off. So Liv, what is your favorite Easter tradition? Um, I'm trying to think. Honestly, we didn't have like a ton of Easter traditions in my house growing up. We did have some, mm-hmm. but um, I mean, I think the main ones were that we would hard boil eggs and then decorate them. But for some reason, okay, so we like we painted them, but we always used crayons too like we would we like did too <laughs> okay I was like is that just us like we would use crayons and like draw pictures on them and then you wouldn't really see your picture <laughs> until you like put it in the dye and then you're yep. like ah there it is I did a horrible job you know because <laughs> you can't really see it like we would do it with like white crayons and stuff so it's like mystery um, art <laughs> yeah but yeah I mean that was always fun we'd always eat the hard-boiled eggs for breakfast and stuff <laughs> and that was a fun time um, and then I, I think the other one that I really liked was when we were little, we would do like Easter baskets. Like my, my, um, my parents would hide Easter baskets and we'd have to like go find them. And that was, always really fun. Um, just kind of doing that as a family. I do also remember that's like, for some reason we didn't really eat that much candy on like Halloween, mm-hmm. but Easter was like the holiday <laughs> that we ate all the candy on. I remember one time we couldn't find my sister for, I want to say a good hour. And my mom went and looked under the table and she was sitting under the table with all of her chocolate and she had (laughs) eaten like all, I mean, this is when she was like five, but she had eaten like all of it. That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Just sitting in a pile of chocolate, which is (laughs) every child and honestly, every person's dream. That's true. So, um, yeah, but yeah, it was always a fun holiday. I look on Easter fondly. Yeah. That's amazing. So for us, my family, my family is really bad at keeping traditions because we're really bad at remembering which tradition corresponds to like what holiday. Like, for example, (laughs) there's this one holiday we would always have lasagna, like homemade lasagna. But there was always a yearly argument in my family, whether it was like Christmas Eve or did we do that on New Year's Eve? Like every year it would be (laughs) a thing. And so we're like really bad at doing traditions. But there is one that I remember for Easter that we did, like we did the egg dyeing and everything. But my mom had this like egg carton and in it were like plastic eggs, like the ones that you do like, you know, hunt like treasure hunts with Yeah, Um, plastic ones that open up in the middle and they have candy. But the really cool thing was this kind of like Advent. So in them, it was like 12, you know, 12 egg carton. And leading up to Easter, it would always have like an item in the middle that related to Easter or Good Friday or, you know, somehow Holy Week and the story of Christianity. And it was really cool because I think it would lead up to like Good Friday would be the cross and then Sunday would be like the stone rolled away. I I can't remember all the items, but it was really cool because I remember how fun it was to just like open it every every day leading up to Easter. My mom would talk through you know, what each item meant. And it was just really fun. I don't know if she has it anymore, but I remember growing up as a really fun thing to do every year. It was one of my favorite things to play with to like 
just take all the items out and replace them and see if I can remember yeah. which goes to which day and all that stuff is really fun. That is fun. I do remember actually doing something like we might've had the same set mm-hmm. possibly or our friends did, because I do remember doing an Easter egg hunt where we looked for Easter eggs and opened them. And there was like one with a crown of thorns and like yes. one with a cross and like one with the stone and kind of honestly, no, such an unholy child. I remember like opening the <laughs> eggs and being like, what is this? Like, I felt so cheated. I was Where's like, where candy? is my chocolate? Like, <laughs> I don't want amazing. this crown of thorns. I mean, now I appreciate is this edible? Is this an edible? Crown yeah, of is, is this a chocolate crown of thorns? Excuse me. Like, I mean, yeah. Again, now I appreciate the sentiment. I think it's a great idea to yeah. teach your kids about the story of the gospel. But at the time I was like, excuse me, <laughs> I was expecting candy or money or something. Mm, that's so funny because I loved it. Mean it. I thought bit. it was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> that's awesome. The difference, oh I swear. God has, has done a work in me since then, I hope. But um, <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> All right. So we are going to jump right into our topic for today. I feel like we should have maybe considered doing like a an <laughs> Easter, Easter topic, possibly. Here's the thing, though. we I don't think we thought to ourselves, oh, this episode is coming out on Easter. Yeah. Like we just didn't think that far ahead. <laughs> we were just kind of like, yes, series. So this topic is um not on Easter. However, we are going to talk about, you know, the Bible and Jesus. Mm-hmm. So it relates in one way or another. But um, another disclaimer just for this episode, because this is part three of the same series that we've been doing the last two episodes. So uh, just short disclaimer here that, again, we are going to be talking about some adult topics. So if there are kids in earshot, maybe wait until a later time to listen. So in this episode, we wanted to talk about um, what sex and marriage were meant for. Um, in the last couple of episodes, we kind of talked about the lies on the two extreme ends of the spectrum. So we talked about the lies of purity culture, and then we also talked about the lies of sexual liberalism. So we kind of want to now talk about the truth. Um, so we did kind of combat those lies with truth, with biblical truth on marriage and sex. Um, but we kind of just wanted to dedicate an entire episode to that topic as a whole and just really discuss it together. Um, like what is marriage? What was it meant for? Um, what is the purpose of it? Um, and where do we see it in scripture? So, yeah, cause I would say that growing up in the church, we hear so much about, what we're to do before marriage, but we're rarely instructed on marriage itself or sex after marriage and what that is supposed to look like according to scripture. Um, So again, today we just want to talk about what does God say about sex? What was it created to be before this fallen world distorted it? Um, So today we're going to venture through three different books. We're going to talk about Genesis. We're going to talk about Song of Solomon. Um, I think we are going to throw Ephesians in there as well. Um, And then we're going to talk about Revelation. So I guess four total um, to discuss God's intention for sex and for marriage as something that he created to be good. Yeah, I think it's super interesting how you or well, both of us are kind of saying sex and marriage interchangeably, not, not that they're the same thing because they're yeah. meant for a similar thing. And I think that's really important as we move forward to, to kind of, because we talked about in the last two episodes that sex is meant for the covenant of marriage. There may be sometimes where we kind of use those terms interchangeably and we don't literally think that they're the same thing, but because right. they're, you know, they cannot be divorced from each other. No pun intended. That's kind of how we're going <laughs> to 
Um, use those terms. Uh, but first, yeah, starting out with Genesis, I think it's really cool that God talks about uh, and defines marriage just right from the get-go. No secrets, no surprise. Starting out a little controversial for the culture, but I'm just going to say it. <laughs> As always. Genesis 1:27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. There's no ways around this, guys. There may yeah. be ways that we want to get around this, and there may be maybe real reasons, too, that we want to get around this because there's brokenness everywhere, and there's a lot of reasons why this might be something that's a little scary, but we're going to kind of talk through how it's actually the most amazing thing, because right in the next verse, uh, the Bible says, God bless them. He said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So it's important when we think about how people were created, man and woman, it's important to remember why humans were created in the first place. The first part of that is to subdue the earth. So we were really made to partner with God to take care of the world, make the world flourish, make it grow, which is also partly why we were made in his image, which we even talked about even in our first episode too, because we're meant to use creativity, intelligence, Mm -hmm. and those uh, characteristics that he gave us to carry out the plan he had to make the world flourish. And then the second part was to multiply. So this is where marriage and sex comes in. This is what marriage was created for and what sex was created for. So within a covenant bond, humans would procreate and fill the world with more people who would keep on carrying out that mission. So that's kind of the basis. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think it's also important to kind of talk through also why God chose the system. So I don't know if you had any thoughts on what I've said so far, if you wanted to jump in there, Liv. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's important to point out when we're talking about this topic too, that God didn't just create sex for procreation alone. Um, He definitely created it to be something that's enjoyable between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. Otherwise, I don't think it would be enjoyable. (laughs) It would just kind of be like, okay, this is what we do to have kids, but it's just like a check off the to-do list, I guess. So I do think that that is important to point out, that that is the way that God chose to um, give us a blessing of sex within marriage um, in order to to complete the divine mandate that he gave us, the cultural mandate to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Um, So that is, you know, the mission that he kind of gave humanity in the beginning. And that's how he chose to um, allow that to be done. Yeah. I think it really goes back to seeing how God is a God of purpose. When he creates something, he means something for it. So first, first of all, joy and pleasure. Mm -hmm. So marriage and sex bring joy and pleasure. You have a partnership, you have a helper in life. You don't have to do it alone. But then second of all, it's also really practical in the way that Mm -hmm it creates more children. Now it doesn't always. And so that is a really important qualifier that you added, but I think it, again, it just comes back to the intelligence and the creativity and also the details of God that every single thing he does have has purpose. If you're willing to right. seek it and to find it. And I, I think it comes back to also saying like, why are we man and woman? And you know, right. why couldn't it be man and man? Why couldn't it be woman and woman? Or why couldn't it even be man, man, woman? Like, why did it have to be a partnership of two people? Why did it have to be a duality? And again, right. if you're going from the mindset that God has a purpose, you're going to land in the right spot for it. But if it's coming from a place of like, what can I get out of it? And what way can I shimmy your way around the way that God made it? Then we're going to end up in the wrong place. And so I think it's important to kind of see how men and women really complement each other. 
So not Mm -hmm. just anatomically, when we talk about just the physical act of sex and how it results in fetal development and children, but also psychologically. So Mm -hmm. emotionally and mentally, there's so many ways that we complement each other. That's why we have like stereotypes, you know, jokes about, you know, marriage and relationships, because there are certain things that I think men and women can be more skilled at than others. And it's, again, we're not dealing in absolutes. It's not always true, but an example like the most plain example is that women tend to be more nurturing. This isn't true for every woman. Uh-huh. It's not true that men can't be nurturing. This is just a characteristic that women have been specifically gifted by God to be because of being mothers and having children. So that's mm-hmm. just one example. And it kind of shows how the duality of man and woman is not oppressive, but it's actually freeing because you don't have to fulfill the characteristics of the other person. They can right. compliment you in ways that are super helpful. You can live into and lean into the skills that you have, but you can, that doesn't mean that you can't grow and learn in the skills that the other person has. It just means that you don't have to do it on your own. You were made to have a helper. Right. You know, obviously this is like the perfect partnership that God joined together that he created in the first place. Um, so we should look at it the same way. Um, he could have chosen to do it a different way and he didn't. So that should mean something to us as a God who is never purposeless in what he does, um, at all. And obviously it is true, you know, men and women complement each other, um, physically, emotionally, you know, a lot of different ways. Um, but I think in anything, when you are dealing with, humanity, when you're dealing with people, there's always going to be some type of distortion with that, um, from person to person, just because of the fall of man, you know, like there's always going to be some type of, do you know what I mean? Like there's always going to be something in there that it's like, well, this person doesn't fit into that narrative or that Mm -hmm. category because, um, you know, such and such. So obviously Mm -hmm. there's always going to be those things, um, just because we are dealing with fallen human beings. Also good diversity too. When someone has a lack of a good characteristics, we can't attribute that to the fall. And like, for example, if you're not a good father, you don't have the qualities at all of a father. So you're not nurturing at all. You don't provide at all. You don't protect at all. We can attribute that to the fall. Whereas Mm -hmm. when we look at men and women or even mothers and fathers, some of the different things that some of them are better at, it's just cool. Like a cool thing that God made us different and diverse and good at things that other people aren't good at because, you know, otherwise we don't need each other. Like what's the point of having someone else around if you can do it all on your own? And, you know, we even see that with like single parents who are absolutely doing the best job they could possibly be doing under their circumstances. But just having one parent is never going to replace two parents. So I think it's just cool when you look at the different the roles and the different things that men and women tend to be good at. I think that's right. It's just really cool that God made us that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we'll talk about that like in detail yes. in a little bit here. But yeah, I mean, I think it's important to remember too. It's like, where did men and women even come from? You know, like <laughs> Man was made in the image of God, just like woman. However, woman was taken out of man, um, which we see in Genesis 2. So um, do you want to read that verse? Yes, absolutely. So this is Genesis 2, verse 21 through 24. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. That's just crazy. If you think about it. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this 
this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh, which is really cool because Genesis even says that before there were fathers and mothers, like there was no children yet. It was just Adam and Eve. And the Bible's already saying a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. So design right. is there present already before right. children are even in the picture. It's very cool. And I think that's really cool because it comes back to the fact that just by existing, we represent something greater. And when we talk about men and women not being the same, I think what we're ultimately pointing to is this idea of complementarianism. So it's this belief that men and women are equal, but they complement each other in different ways, or they might have different characteristics. So there's a quote I found from an article from the Gospel Coalition by Mary Cassie, and I'll make sure to link it in our show notes. Um, but she says, quote, complementarians believe that males were designed to shine the spotlight on Christ's relationship to the church in a way females cannot, and that females were designed to shine the spotlight on the church's relationship to Christ in a way that males cannot. Who we are as male and female is ultimately not about us. It's about testifying to the story of Jesus, end quote. So when we think about coming back to our identities, it, it's really important to remember that it's ultimately not about us, but it's actually about the creator and about his design. And again, about Christ's relationship to the church, which we will get into a little bit more. But as we walk forward from this definition of marriage put in Genesis, I think that's just super important to keep in mind. Yeah, for sure. I definitely think I like that quote a lot. I think it's an interesting thought concept to think of like men kind of representing Christ's relationship to the church and then females representing the church's relationship to Christ. Because I feel like it, it definitely shows you like the equality of roles there, but at the same time, the difference between them and how they it's like a, a reciprocal thing, you know, like one to the other. So I just think that's really cool. It definitely reflects Ephesians 5, um, which we're going to talk about next. Um, so kind of going into the second part of our conversation where we're going to more describe marriage and kind of jump into um, what it really looks like and what it's supposed to be. What the verse that we used as kind of the inspiration for our title for this episode um, is Song of Solomon 2.4, which says, He brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. So we've kind of talked in a previous episode of what it means to be someone's banner, like what it means to have the Lord as our banner. So in this way, obviously it's not talking about God specifically, but it is talking about the bride and his beloved, um, or <laughs> the bride and her <laughs> beloved, excuse me, um, and just kind of talking about um, the representation there, the treatment there that he is for her, that his banner over her is love, basically. Mm -hmm. So going off of that, I think we can confidently say that marriage was created to be an image of Jesus and his bride. And that's not necessarily to say that in like a romantic way, um, but just kind of the relational intimacy there is represented through marriage. So I'm going to read Ephesians 5. 22 through 33, which is a number of verses, but it's really good. I feel like it needs to be read like, you know, as a whole. So, so Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 says, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and give himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And it's quoting Genesis there. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. She respects her husband. I really like that callback to Genesis. It's quoted directly. I know. Isn't that cool? I love when that happens in scripture because it kind of just shows you the um, narrative of it as a whole because this verse is in the New Testament. Although I am hearing hearing in this New Testament passage, why should submit to their husbands? What's going on? Like, I know. (laughs) What is that? All the what is are like, excuse me. <laughs> yes, I know. And we said it. We went there. Um, <laughs> SB, the Bible went there. <laughs> no, I mean, yes, the Bible went there, but we repeated it. Um, yeah, we do believe that, obviously, but we're going to talk about that a little bit more right now, actually. Um, so marital roles are very important to talk about yes. because they truly do complement each other in a way that you know you know, through scripture, through what we're told in scripture was divinely created. Um, it's something that God set in place. So again, that should mean something to us. That shouldn't be something where we're like, well, yeah, but God said it, but like, I don't like that. So that should never be our mindset towards anything. God is much higher than we are and clearly knows better. So, um, we know that marital roles are a hot topic, mostly due to, um, feminist mindset and the feminist movement. Um, we do just want to say though, men and women were created equal. I do want to make a point of saying that just because roles do not mean that one is worth more than the other. That's something that's important to distinguish. Uh, if you have a role as the person who works in the office and does administrative stuff, and then you have a coworker that goes out and does recruiting, you're both still equal (laughs) in measure. You're both still contributing to your company, um, in a significant way. You're not unequal. However, you just have different roles. You have different ways that you're supposed to, um, carry out your job. So that's important to say, did you have any thoughts on that or the verse at all? Yeah. I think another really cool metaphor for that too, is thinking about the body. Cause even the Bible uses this metaphor of our bodies that one part of our body is not more important than the other. They just have a different mm-hmm. purpose. Your hands and feet have a different purpose. And obviously you have your vital organs and things like that. But it's when you look at all those things working together, you have one body moving and working together for one purpose and in unity. Right. That's another way I think we can think about marriage as well. Um, and also marital roles, because you may be different and you may have, you may serve a different purpose in the home or in the family it even in different times of your lives, like just depending on what your life ends up looking like or who has a job when or all those different circumstances, but that your marriage is still for one purpose is to glorify God. And you work through mm-hmm. that together. You work through life together for that ultimate end goal. And it looks different for a, a lot of people, just depending on what their marriage looks like too. 
Um, so kind of jumping into marital roles themselves, we're going to talk about the woman's role first, and then we'll go into the man's role. Um, and this is talking about the woman and the man's role in a relationship in marriage specifically, um, just like the verse in Ephesians was talking about. Um, so the woman's role, we see this word a lot, and this is a scary word for a lot of people. Yeah. Submission. Dun, dun, dun. Um, <laughs> I feel like it needs like a back, like a theme song. It kind of does. Um, Like a very dark theme song. So the, (laughs) I kind of wanted to take these roles back to the original language and look up Ephesians 5 in the Greek. Um, Since it was written in the New Testament, the original language that it was written in is Greek. So I kind of wanted to look up different words like this one and just see how it was originally written out, what it actually means. So the verb here in the Greek is upataso which translates to place under, to subject, or to obey. Um, So in the original language of scripture, we can't deny it here, the woman is told to obey her husband. However, this is not the only thing that's denoted to women. So the next word that I wanted to talk about is the woman's own. Um, So we see that kind of talking about her husband. It says, wives submit to your own husband's. Um, so the word own there is the word idios, which translates to one's own distinct belonging to one and personal. So in other words, the woman and the man belong to one another in marriage. So this is not like a hierarchy of like men are more important and all of that kind of stuff. This is like a, they belong to each other. Um, so this is a personal, you know, relationship. This is not like an authoritarian um, relationship (laughs) that we're talking about, like a dictatorship or something over one other person. Um, that is not the correct representation of marriage at all. So they belong to one another in marriage while there are roles, they belong to each other, not simply one to the other or vice versa. Um, did you have any thoughts on the woman's role specifically? Yeah. When you talk about uh, the woman's own, I wanted to add something here too, that We have to make the consideration that it's not just any woman submitting to any man, because I think that's one way that the idea has been distorted. The biblical principle has been distorted. So I think there might be people, actually, I know for a fact there are people that think it means that men over, like, overall are just always over women, regardless of the Mm. circumstance, regardless of the context. And that's not correct. It's just within a marriage that women are the woman is meant to submit to the man not mm-hmm. like you're not just supposed to submit to joe schmo over there just because like it, just because he's a man that happens to me and you know oh he has more intelligence or he knows right or he's the leader like you're just supposed to follow him it's no your husband who is yours who you belong to who also belongs to you who's supposed to love you as his own flesh which we'll just we'll talk about in just a second because he's leading you as he loves you. So that's just a really important qualifier that I wanted to add because it's, I think it's a way that the biblical principle has been distorted so that people could discredit the Bible or discredit Christianity and say that it's oppressive to women, but it's not. When we really look at the context, we go back to the original language and understand it as it was meant to be understood by Paul writing this to the church. Mm -hmm. This is really what he meant. You as the wife submit to the husband. Right. Yeah. I mean, I do think that there is something to say about like women submitting to men in the church in some ways too, like under church authority and stuff. Um, But I, I also agree though, that this doesn't mean like if a man that is a complete stranger to you and is like not in the body of Christ is not a fellow brother in Christ is just like a man 
that's like, you know, living his life, doing his thing and tells you to do something that you have to do it. That's absolutely not, you know? Um, and again, this is submission in a way that's glorifying to God. Um, so there are other, other ways or other men that are not, um, you know, believers that are not living their lives to glorify God that could tell you to do something that is not glorifying to him. So it's like, you know, you have to be careful when you look at, um, the submission and know that in this context specifically, it is uh, talking about the husband and the wife, um, in a, you know, covenant under God. So, um, kind of moving into the man's role. So the man is said to be the head over the wife. So the word here for head is capsule, which translates to a cornerstone uniting two walls, the head. So with that said, the man is to be the rock in the relationship. Um, You know, it defines this as the cornerstone, the stability, the leader. The man is supposed to unite the two. Um, So we are, you know, told that women are supposed to submit to their husbands, but we're also told that men are to love their wives, that they are to unite that they are to be the stabilizer, the leader in the relationship. Um, so this is not just a one-sided street. The man has a job and the woman has a job and they complement each other beautifully in a way that God created it to be. So the word for love that's used here, I'm sure we've all heard of like agape love. Um, so this is basically just the verb version of that, um, like to love, which is agapeo, which translates to Uh, wish well to, to take pleasure in, to long for. Um, It denotes love in unison. So um, the way that the love is described here, this is not just like a fleeting surface level love. This is truly a deep covenantal love um, that you take pleasure in the other person. You long for the other person. Um, You wish well for them. So if you're wishing well for someone, you're loving them. You're not going to you know, rule over them in such a way that is like abusive or a dictatorship or what have you. Um, so this is why we see that the two roles do complement each other in a beautiful way, because yes, the woman is told to submit to the husband, but the husband is also told to wish well for his wife, to want to put her, you know, above himself. It says that the wife's body belongs to the husband, but the husband's body belongs to the wife as well. So it's like, it's a give and take situation for sure. Yeah. The woman is submitting to the man because he has his best, her best interest in mind. Right. That, like you said, wishing, not just wishing well to, but also implementing it too. So if Mm -hmm. there's a decision made for the family or for the marriage, it's with the man being the last one, like he's putting everybody else everybody else, whether that's, um, the, just the wife or the wife and the kids in front of himself. So that's why right. the woman should be able to confidently submit to that decision because she knows it's done with her interest being put first. And right. that's, that's the complementary relationship we're talking about. We're not talking about one in which the man puts himself first and says, you have to go along with it because I'm the guy and I'm the man. And that means for you that you just have to go along with it. Right. Well, yeah. First Corinthians 13 talks about love and it talks about how love is not boastful. Love is not selfish. It seeks the good of others. You know, love is not prideful, you know, Mm -hmm. like it's, it's definitely something where it takes humility to truly love someone else. It's selfless. Yeah. Um, so true love as it was meant to be is, you know, that way, as it's described in that, that chapter. Yeah. I also just want to add one thing too, is that this was 
Paul was writing this to a church that this would have been completely countercultural. Like this would have been a huge shock for them to hear because they were living in a culture where it was really, really normal for a man to take multiple wives or multiple Mm -hmm. women or concubines and have children by them. And then in this situation, in this culture, Paul's saying like, you, you have one and she is your everything. You put her above all things. You make decisions in such a way that they benefit her and the children that you have with that one woman. So this is completely mm-hmm. countercultural. For us hearing this today, we're so far removed from that culture that we have to remember who Paul was speaking to. And this also would have been completely a shock for the women hearing it too, because they were living also in a culture where the man, the man they're married to might not always like know her, might not know mm-hmm. you, might not ever really spend time with you. Like maybe he financially provides for you and your children, but he might not love you at all. Like you could just be another one of his girls. And so for a woman to hear this and say, I'm supposed to submit to a husband who like, doesn't even know me, but it's a completely counterculture because no, he was supposed to love you, know what's best for you, know you deeply and intimately, and you should be able to trust him. So I just Mm want to add that as well, the context in which it was being heard so for today, us hearing this is kind of hard because we don't like the idea of submitting to a man in general. That's hard. So just want to encourage anyone listening, like back when it was first written and shared, it was pretty shocking back then, but just in a different way. Yeah. I mean, we definitely see that the world has taken these roles and has distorted them to make them sound as if the woman's role is less than. Um, but this is not what scripture says. And I mean, in today's culture, Um, even just alluding to the fact that a woman would have to submit to a man in any way, regardless of how he treats her is like, just, it's like cursing someone out. Like you really just offended someone personally (laughs) by saying that, um, just because I think we're, we've kind of, you know, created this culture now, especially more in the West where it's like, um, the woman should be able to do whatever she wants. The woman is the head of her household. The woman, you know, wears the pants in the relationship. If mama's happy, everyone's happy. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, yeah. it's definitely more women focused. Like whatever she says goes, she's always right. The woman's always right. Um, so it's kind of like flipped, flip the switch a little bit nowadays where we're like overcompensating for this, um, for, you know, the oppression that we saw over the years of history, especially in America. And so it's like, uh, just as overcompensation to kind of say, well, now women have power. Um, and truly that is not how God created it to be. That doesn't mean that women cannot accomplish things. It does not mean that women cannot have careers. That does not mean that women, that doesn't mean that a woman can't have any power in any capacity, um, you know, of leadership. However, This is how God created the relationship between a man and a woman to be in the covenant of marriage. Um, So that is, you know, important to kind of distinguish as well, because we don't want to say that we're like anti-women doing anything but staying at home in the kitchen and raising children. Like that's not, no, we're not saying that at all. Women can absolutely accomplish things as well, but. We tend to do that. We tend to like swing one way with something the Bible said, like way out to left. And then we really overcompensate by just going to the complete opposite. We just talked about this, with like purity culture yes. and sexual liberalism. We really have a history of doing this just as humans, like taking something God said and saying, going way left or way right and just like swing like a pendulum back and forth. What we yeah. want is that sweet middle. 
that is actually God's design where we can make mistakes and we can have difficulties and struggle in our marriages and struggle to do the things that God told us to do because they're hard and they're challenging and we're not perfect. And man's not always going to love perfectly. And the woman's not always going to submit perfectly. So we're going to have hardship, but as much as we can try to pursue this middle ground, like that's right where God wants us to be, because that really opens us up to true trust, true love, true intimacy. You can, as a man, you can lead her well, because you know that she loves you. And then as Mm -hmm. a woman, you can obey him well, because you know that he loves you because you belong to one another. There's real trust, real intimacy in there. And, And so that's, that's what we're getting after. That's God's design. Right. And there's real love there. You know, it's like, I think when you truly love someone, you want to put their needs before yours. And of course we all have our moments where we want to be selfish, but it's like, <laughs> I have a lot ultimately, of <laughs> I mean, same. I, I'm, I always tell people the number one thing that I realized when I got married is like, wow, I'm selfish Yes, because like, there were so many things like, I didn't think, you know, I thought obviously as a human being, I'm selfish, but I didn't think it was like that bad when I got married. <laughs> and it was like, wow, you're so much like to my husband, like you're so much better <laughs> at being selfless than me. Like, why am I so bad at this? Yeah. So we definitely all have our moments. Yeah. Definitely all have our moments there. But I think ultimately when you truly love someone, you want to put their needs before yours. You want to serve them. You want to make sure that, um, they're taken care of, that they're loved in the best way that you can love them. Um, you know, you wish them well, you know, you ultimately really do. So, um, moving into song of Solomon, um, the verse that we kind of mentioned earlier that we, um, made the title out of, um, states that man is a man's banner over the woman was love. So this aligns beautifully with the roles represented in scripture, just the submission there, um, as well as the love over the woman. Um, so the whole of song of Solomon discusses the relationship between the bride and her beloved. Um, so we see this in all eight chapters. Um, so it's kind of divided by, um, a few different themes, if you will. Um, so we kind of see the adoration between the bride and her beloved in chapters one and two. We see like the longing for one another in chapter three. Um, we see the enjoyment of one another in chapters four and five. Um, and then we also see the support of family and the support of friends in chapter six. Um, we also see more of the same, you know, this enjoyment, this longing for one another in chapter seven. And then finally in chapter eight, we see final words of advice given. So we kind of see this theme throughout um, just of desire of love for one another, of enjoying one another. But there are also warnings that discuss not awakening love before it's time. We see this verse come up several times, actually, throughout the whole of Song of Solomon. Um, But ultimately, or the relationship between a man and a woman in the covenant marriage does reflect our relationship with Christ as the church. So the church is described as the bride of court of Christ. So of course, this is not necessarily like a romantic love, um, but it truly shows an intimacy there, a closeness and a being known and a knowing um, of one another. So um, there's a quote that I really like 
um, from John Piper that talks about this. Um, it says, rather, we say that on the cross, God had in view the actual effective redemption of his children from all that would destroy them, including their own unbelief. And we affirm that when Christ died, particularly for his bride, he did not simply create a possibility for an opportunity for salvation, but really purchased and infallibly secured for them all that is necessary to get them saved, including the grace of regeneration and the gift of faith. So he just talks about, you know, the fact that Christ died for his bride. Um, you know, he loved his bride. And so he died for her, for the church in order that they might be saved. Um, we also see like a similarity between the roles in marriage that Jesus is also stated as the cornerstone, just like, um, the man's role was translated as from the Greek. Did you have any thoughts about all of that, Allison? I know I kind of talked for a while. <laughs> oh God, that was great. I, yeah, that was a great quote as well. <clears throat> I think it's very interesting that we talk about such a profound love that you would lay down your life for somebody else just yeah. so that they could live. Because that's what Piper's getting at when he says it's the grace of regeneration, the gift of faith, not just a possibility for, but really, really he purchased it for them. And it's right. because that when we talk about a marriage, we're really talking about one in the context where the, the man is leading the woman to Christ with everything. So much so that he would lay down his life, that he would sacrifice himself in order for her to have life, which in the context of Christ is dying so that we could have life in relationship with God, because we know that death is separation from God. And so that's just so profound to me. There's not, there's not a lot of people in the world I would die for. Like when you really think about what you would be willing to do, I think for parents, it's their children. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for anyone that's married, it's their spouse. And for other people, it would be maybe your very best friend or someone in your family. But it's just such a deep and profound love that you would be willing because we talked about and from that verse in Ephesians that you read earlier that a man loves his wife as if she's his own body. Like he loves her so much as if he was she was him because they're one flesh. Right. So it's just oh, it's such a profound love you would have to have for someone to be willing to die for them, which is what we're talking about again, with this Easter weekend, uh, mm-hmm. but just that that's the context of marriage. That's if you're the wife, the person that you are obeying and submitting to, it's because he loves you so much. He would die for you. Mm-hmm. And so you can confidently walk into something he might be leading you into because you know, it's for your good. It's not just blindly right. stepping into whatever, just because he's a man, there's reasons that God put this in place. So it's just, it really comes full circle right? about it. Yeah. Like if he's practicing his role, well, he should be leading you in such a way that's for your good and is for the glory of God ultimately. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. Um, yeah. Cause of course, like we see that all humanity is a broken image of Christ, you know, it's a cracked mirror of his image. Um, but we can still see the similarities that God has given men and women in the relationship and the covenant of marriage between Jesus and his bride, the church. Yeah. And I think it's all well and good to talk about what marriage is supposed to be but we also know we also know that we live in a broken world and that marriage Mm -hmm. doesn't always look like this that there's a lot of marriages that don't that lack trust that lack intimacy that don't have these things that god designed it to be so did kind of want to step away a little bit and just just talk about that because it's it's great to talk about what marriage is supposed to be but it's also really important to recognize that we won't do this perfectly because we're both married 
we not we haven't been married for long but it's just long enough to know that wow marriage is really hard it's really challenging to love someone this deeply and to be Mm -hmm. selfless and to to submit to your husband when maybe you don't agree with the decision he's making or whatever it may be for whatever reason so I just wanted to lean into that a little bit that it's not all daisies and roses. It's not easy like this all the time. We're not always, you're not always going to desire them, like, or always feel love for them. In fact, there may be seasons in your life where you don't feel that at all. Yeah. Well, yeah, of course, it's definitely not always easy. Like, I will say it's worth it. Yes. Um, but yeah, you definitely have moments here and there where it's not easy. And I mean, I know for us, like we've only been married for like a year and a half now. So yeah. like some people might be listening to this, like, oh, just wait. Okay. Just also, wait. <laughs> can we just like talk about the fact that before you get married, people like tell you like, like, okay. In the church, I feel like growing up, right. Everyone always talks about marriage. It's great. It's perfect. Marriage is the goal. Like <laughs> that's what they seem to insinuate. Right. But then it's like, as soon as you get engaged, you have all these people being like, the first year is so hard mm. or you have people coming up to you saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. The first and second year will be great, but year three is going to hit you. Like, you know what I mean? Like they almost like just wish on you this, like just a terrible year somewhere thrown in there. Like this year though is going to be really hard. And it's just based on their own experience. They're <laughs> just like, yeah. okay. Um, so I mean, luckily for my husband and I, like we had a really tough first year in the way that like life was hard. Like there were a lot of things thrown at us in life. Like we had job changes, we moved, um, you know, we had some struggles. We had a lot of changes happen in our life. Um, but I feel like marriage was like the thing that kept us like stable, you know, like it kept us, um, able to kind of stand together. We were able to grow stronger. We were able to point each other to Jesus, Um, so it's like, it's hard. It's a challenge, but it's also like the most beautiful challenge that you'll ever have in your life. Um, cause it really does produce growth and sanctification in you, um, as it goes on, because you truly do want to put someone else in front of yourself. And that takes dying to yourself. That takes all of these things that are described in scripture as good things. Um, it takes not being selfish. It takes being humble. Um, it takes being kind when you don't want to be, it takes forgiving when you don't feel like forgiving. Um, but then at the same time, it cultivates this beautiful relationship that allows you to see the gospel in a new way. Cause I will say that I feel like I understand the love of God for his church and for his people more after being married to someone who truly, you know, loves me as Christ loves the church. Um, Like that's something I don't think I would have experienced otherwise. Um, And that's not saying that like you can't experience love in a deep way or intimacy in a deep way, especially with God as a single person. Um, But you definitely do have that gift in marriage. And that is truly a beautiful thing. Yeah, because I have the most tangible picture of someone loving me when I'm the most unlovable person ever. Okay, my husband does that all the time. <laughs> and I mean, my parents also were that for me. So if I needed a picture of unconditional love before my husband, they're absolutely that for me. But there's another level when you're like, I'm just the worst, the yeah. worst right now. And the fact that you're still here, that is a really great picture. It's one of the most yes. tangible ways you'll see the love of God can continue to pursue you when you were just not lovable. (laughs) 
all that to say that we recognize the challenge of marriage. We recognize yes. how hard it is and can be. And we know that sometimes like marriages sometimes don't last because we know this world is broken mm-hmm. and it helps us long to see marriage be perfected, yeah. which is the most exciting part that we get to look forward to. This kind of brings us to our last um, part of this episode, which is a discussion of revelation and Mm -hmm. how God has been so gracious as to reveal to us the way he plans to perfect marriage and what it's going to look like. So from Revelation 19, I'm just going to read this passage real quick. The marriage of the supper of the lamb. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage of the supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Now it's John speaking. That's just so beautiful. Yeah, for sure. And it comes back to the the whole story we've been talking about, the biblical narrative and the unity of the biblical narrative. So from creation and the definition of marriage through the fall and the distortion of marriage and every other thing in the world as well through redemption and how we understand marriage to be described finally to the consummation and restoration in which marriage is perfected. And it is that image of us and Jesus. When we're talking about marriage being perfected, by the way, we are talking about the marriage between Christ and his bride. Yes. Um, We're not talking about earthly marriages, um, which will always be um, a blessing in the way that they reflect that relationship, but will never be perfect in that way. Um, we will not be married in heaven. Yeah, exactly. It all, again, like it points back to the unity of the biblical narrative from the first to the final book of the Bible. God stays consistent. He comes right out of the gate and he tells us what it is. And he concludes it by telling us how he plans to conclude his plan, his mission, his design. Um, so we can trust him because he never once changed his mind. He never once went back on what he said. So when God calls something good, the way he defined marriage, we can trust that it's good and we can pursue it wholeheartedly. No regrets, yeah. no doubts. Yeah. And it's also super cool to see like the creation, fall, redemption, restoration, or consummation um, relationship is a story of redemption for all sins, for all um, hardship in the world. You know, the Bible says that, um, there will be no more tears. There will be no more pain. Um, once this restoration is, is made, cause it's the restoration of the fall as a whole. It's not just for marriage. It's about, um, you know, every other thing in creation. Um, so we know that we don't live in a perfect world. <laughs> we know that marriage is not perfect in this world, that it never will be. We know that even though the marriage bed and covenant were created for one man and one woman, this design has been uh, perverted and manipulated for human fleeting pleasure in different ways throughout the course of history. Um, We also know that, um, you know, there are other complicated matters when it comes to marriage and sex, like uh, infertility, um, you know, abortion, tons of other things, um, stillbirths. We also know that some people want to be married and are not. Um, so broken dreams and desires can abound just in several different ways. So I guess the question there is how does God heal us and meet our needs in broken, broken circumstances? 
Um, so we're actually going to talk a little bit about this um, in general uh, in our next episode. We're kind of doing like a little bonus to this series on singleness. Um, we just felt like it was something that needed to be addressed because we've talked a lot about sex and marriage and what that looks like and the way that it was supposed to be and the lies that the church has told us. Um, but we didn't really talk about it too much as how that pertains to someone who, um, has either chosen to be single or who, you know, is just single thus far in their life <laughs> and, um, what that looks like. Um, cause the Bible truly describes singleness as a gift. Um, so we just kind of wanted to dive a little bit deeper, um, into that. Um, but I did just want to leave with this, this world might be a, very broken place, very distorted place, a place that has, you know, a lot of beautiful things, but also a lot of really challenging and hard things in it. However, God's final step in his plan for this world is restoration. Um, So no matter what we do face in this life, no matter what hardship comes our way um, in Christ, we know that eventually we will be restored, that we won't have to deal with the pain and the hardship and the hurt of this world anymore. Um, Allison, did you have any final thoughts before we close out here? Just yes and amen. I'm very excited <laughs> to um, the singleness episode is actually something that kind of came up while we were working through yeah. this because we did intend for this to be a three part series. But um, right. I did, you know, release that bonus episode on postmodernism to kind of companion with the sexual liberalism episode. And then I also um, we also decided to do an episode on singleness because we it's so important to talk about the different ways we can lead lead out of our Christianity because it's not always marriage. And yeah, no, some people don't want to be married or some people just that's not the circumstance their life is in right now. And I will say singleness was one of the most like gr- seasons of growth in my life when I was between yeah. two relationships. Like one of the most growth I've ever had in my relationship with God was in that season. And so mm-hmm. I know we're not married any, or we are married now. We're not single anymore, but we do still have some insight that we would just love to share from those periods in our lives and obviously offer biblical wisdom. So we are very excited for next week's episode as well. Yeah, for sure. We just kind of want to address that um, just because we do know there are a lot of people that are um, single right now or have been single for a long time. Um, some long to you know be married and hope for that in the future and some don't. Um, and we just kind of wanted to talk deeper about that and how in the Bible, this is actually talked about as a really good thing being single. Um, whereas in the church, it can kind of be distorted into like marriage is the end goal of everything and married people are put on a pedestal. So we kind of just wanted to talk about that a little bit, but exactly. um, thank you so much for joining us today, guys. Thank you for coming along. If you've listened to the end here, um, just our whole talk on marriage and sex and what it's supposed to um, be according to scripture. Um, we hope that you'll join us next week for our talk on singleness. And we hope that you guys have a very happy Easter and enjoy um, time with family, enjoy some chocolate, and have a great rest of your day.